Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Tuesday evening where we continue our study on the book of Revelation. We are in the last chapter of the book of Revelation. We are really in the last, oh, what, uh, 10, 11, 12 verses of the book of Revelation. We will pick up with verse 10. You know, when you really want to get to the heart of any read, you always want to pay special attention to the opening chapter and to the concluding chapter. And I would even say even more so some of the opening words and some of the concluding words. So we are going to be paying close attention to the concluding words of the most important book ever written. Why? Because it's the only book (laughs) that has been written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit as we understand that, of course, within the context of inerrancy. So these days, these evenings are quite exciting for me, and hopefully they are for you as we continue our journey deeper into the book of Revelation in these last few verses. And we've been working with various reads, uh, certainly, of course, Michael Barber's Coming Soon, Peter Williamson's Catholic Commentary on Sacred Scripture, Scott Hahn's Lamb's Supper, and others. And uh, we are indebted to these figures, to these authors who have spent a great deal of time reflecting upon the book that we have been studying over the last four and a half months. And so we will continue to draw from them in these final days. And I, I do want to mention, too, as we talk about these final days, Debbie Rosales will be joining me either tomorrow or Thursday as we are in wrap-up mode, and she will be sharing some of her own personal reflections as she has not only been journeying with us from uh, time to time, but uh, in her own time has she been reflecting upon the book of Revelation. With that, let us jump back into the book of Revelation. If you don't have your Bibles out, please take them out. It is always important to, I think, read with me these verses, huh? I got into that last week, I think at the beginning of last week, or maybe it was two weeks ago, I'm forgetting now, but the importance of just spending time with these verses, that this just isn't you turning on the radio, listening to me, and then when I'm done, not going back into the book of Revelation. No, I am all about, before you listening to me, you spending time praying over the text within the context that we've talked about it in Lexio Divina. So please do that. And hopefully you are doing that and you're coming to listen to this radio program or podcast in light of what you have already read. So (laughs) with that, again, chapter 22, and I will go ahead and read verses, let's see here, verses 10 to 13, 10 to 13. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book for the time is near. Let the evildoers still do evil, and let the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Wow, are those some important words. Verse 12, behold, here it is again, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense to repay everyone for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. There's that verse, for the time is near. What did I say yesterday? Remember how we compared Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, 
with chapter 22, verses 6 to 10. Chapter 1, verse 3 reads what? For the time is near. Here again, verse 10. For the time is near. It's interesting. I was just talking about how when you read a book, you ought to appreciate the beginning and the end of the book. Well, in so many ways, as each chapter's come full circle, you want to look at the beginning and the end of each chapter, in this case, a book, and in this case, the book of Revelation. The last few verses of the book of Revelation are very much caught up with the first few verses. So this is God being God. <laughs> if you want to learn how to be a great author, well, turn to the divine author, and you'll understand what it means to be inspired. Amen to that. Okay, so these verses again, verses 10 to 13. The command not to seal up the words of this book implies what? But that its prophecies are soon to be fulfilled. Daniel, interestingly, was told just the opposite. If you were to turn to Daniel chapter 12, verse 4, we read, But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. So John, therefore, is told that essentially the end is about to come. And because of the imminent coming of Jesus, John is told to let the wicked continue in their ways. Their time is short. The righteous should continue to endure. Why? Because they don't have much longer to wait until God's judgment comes. In other words, (laughs) what is God saying? What is John telling us? Just hang on a little longer. At the same time, They should not fret about the wicked actions of God's enemies since Jesus the Lord will soon deal with them. This is about putting our faith in the person of Jesus Christ and not allowing man's failures and the wickedness of man to overwhelm us. You've heard me say before that a true measure of the man who loves is the man who does not allow another person's weakness or wickedness to dictate how he loves. If we are rooted in a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, and we have a love for Jesus Christ, that will overwhelm the other, the wickedness or the undoing of man. Love always wins. Love always wins. Because as Paul reminds us, this is the virtue that is everlasting. You see, in heaven, my friends, we will no longer need faith and hope. Faith and hope are great theological and moral virtues essential to the Christian Catholic life. But love, love is the essence of God. This remains forever. And so when we love as God calls us to love, which is with our whole heart, mind, soul, and strength, then we will meet Jesus at the finish line. And he will say, come and have your reward. Amen to that. What else here? Well, the Old Testament makes it clear that God's judgment of the wicked is inevitable. The book of Ecclesiastes in chapter 12, verse 14 states, for God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Furthermore, Jesus makes it clear that he himself is the all-powerful God who will sit in judgment of them, identifying himself as the what? The Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Did we not see this as the title of the Lord God and Revelation chapter 1, verse 8. This whole idea of hanging on a little longer. You know, I remember growing up, we had this big pine tree. I mean, it just seemed to climb and climb and climb, at least as a six, seven-year-old it did, right? This huge pine tree. 
It was a perfect climbing tree. And I remember one particular day, finally making it to the top of the pine tree. Well, when I got to the top, one of the branches that I was standing on cracked. And I, I had grabbed a hold of the top branch. It had the strength to hold me. And I could barely hang on. And I could hear my older brother say to me, hang on, hang on just a little longer. If I fell, who knows what would have happened? I was two and a half stories high, right? I'm six, seven years old. And I remember it was hurting my hands. My hands were bleeding, but there was no way I was going to let go. And my brother scurried up the tree and he caught me just as I was about to let go. Why did I not let go, my friends? Because if I fell, even as a six or seven-year-old, I knew instinctively that I may die. So I was going to hang on. Spiritually, my friends, Jesus says to us, hang on just a little longer. Hang on to my hand. Allow me to guide you. Help me to help you navigate the culture of death. Hang on just a little longer. Don't succumb to the bowels of death. What does Peter say? Satan is prowling like a roaring lion. Be sober and alert. Be sober. Be alert. Hang on. Hang on. And and that little longer, my friends, may be the remaining days of your life. If it's 30 years, 20 years, 10 years, 5 years, who knows? But in the grand scheme of time, it's just a little longer. Hang on with the same kind of tenacity that you would hang on for your life if if you were hanging on a tree. (laughs) Do so, and again, you will know your heavenly reward. Okay, verses 14 to 15. Blessed are those who wash their robes, that they may have the right to the tree of life, and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and fornicators and murderers and idolaters, and everyone who loves the practice of falsehood. Man, these are some really strong verses that ought to challenge us to the core. Are we living in the truth? And if we are not living in the truth, are you doing something about it? Do we live in falsehoods? Have we allowed Satan, who's the father of all lies, to confuse us about what he would have us do? We have to examine our conscience, each and every one of us, each and every day, holding nothing back, understanding that I am in control of my life to the extent that I allow the Holy Spirit to invade my soul. To be free is to let God take over the steering wheel, huh? Now, in these verses, verses 14 to 15, the description of the righteous as those who wash their robes and eat from the tree of life, evokes what? What have we talked about here? But the sacraments of baptism and the Holy Eucharist. Why? Because it is through these two sacraments that believers come to enter into the holy city, the holy church. The fathers of the church, the first great Christian thinkers, understood these same sacraments and the symbolism uh, that we talked about already in John 19. The symbolism of blood and water where blood and water flowed from the side of Christ. The fathers saw this image as an image of the church, the new Eve being formed from Christ's side in the sacraments of baptism in the Eucharist. 
such a powerful, powerful image, and certainly one to contemplate. How about verse 16 here? I, Jesus, have sent my angel to you with this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright morning star. So here we are made to see that Jesus has sent his angel to bear his testimony, much like the Old Testament depicts Yahweh sending his angel to bring his messenger. Now, the testimony is specifically for who? But the churches, presumably the seven churches that we have already discussed in chapters 1 to 3. In other words, the book of Revelation's prophecy concerning the destruction of Jerusalem is a warning for the seven churches. Just as Jerusalem is judged for its unfaithfulness, so too will the Christian churches in Asia Minor be judged unless they repent, unless they repent. Now, Jesus' title, the root and offspring of David, recalls what great prophecy. What great prophecy. Maybe the greatest of all prophecies as it involves the coming of the Messiah. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of its roots. What did Isaiah foresee but a time when the Davidic kingdom would be crushed? And is this not what happened in 586 BC when the Babylonians killed King Zedekiah and his sons and and carried the Jews off into captivity? Who was Jesse? Jesse was the father of David. When the Davidic sons were killed, it looked as though Jesse's family tree was cut down. All that remained was a what? But stump right? Stump. Isaiah 11.1, 1, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Yet Isaiah saw that the kingdom would not be defeated. A Messiah would, yes, appear, symbolized by a branch that grows forth from Jesse's tree and restore the kingdom. Jesse, the true son of David, fulfills this. And as the morning star, he brings about the dawn of the new age. Why? Does Matthew open up his gospel with Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham, the son of David? Because of the prophecy of Isaiah 11, verse 1. Matthew was writing to a Palestinian Christian Jewish audience, an audience that was versed in the Old Testament, that had all but every verse of the Old Testament on their fingertips. So for Matthew to say that Jesus Christ is the son of David, is to speak directly to his audience that, yes, he is the one who is going to fulfill the great prophecy. Yes, God is not a liar. He speaks truth. In the great covenant between God and David, mediated by the prophet Nathan, that from David's line would come forth a dynasty, a great dynasty, and a dynasty that would last for 200 years, 300 years, 400 years? No, for all eternity. And we know who David's son was, Solomon. And his kingdom, my friends, would only be a prototype of the one who would come from this line and establish it for all eternity, the son of God, the son of David. You see, the gospel of Matthew, if you pay close attention, has as one of its overarching themes, Jesus Christ, the son of David. Eight times is Jesus Christ called the son of David. It's a point of emphasis. 
If the emphasis of Jesus in the book of Revelation is that Jesus is the Lamb of God, well, in the book of Matthew, as he speaks to his audience, it's Jesus, Son of David. Of great importance is that title. All right, how about verse 17? The Spirit and the bride say, Come. And let him who hears say, Come. And let him who is thirsty, Come. Let him who desires take the water of life without price. Notice the close connection between the Spirit and the bride. Oh, my friends, we could be here for another few weeks unpacking the significance of this verse because theologians have (laughs) spent a lot of time on this verse. So there's at least a few things to consider here. At the very least, there is a profound lesson concerning the relationship of the Spirit, Mary, and the Church. First, a word about the Holy Spirit and the Trinity. What is the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is that interpersonal bond of love between the Father and the Son. Essentially, my friends, the Holy Spirit unites the first and second persons of the Trinity in himself. In the past, we have defined the Trinity right as love given, love received, and love shared. In the Father, love is given. In the Son, love is received. And in the Holy Spirit, love is shared. With the Father, my friends, he gives all he is to the Son. And the Son responds by pouring his life back to the Father. Their love is not given away in a moment. Rather, there is this eternal dynamic of life-giving love. We could say an eternal act of giving, which is the Holy Spirit. Huh? Now, in Michael Barber's Coming Soon, he gets into some theology, very rich theology that I think we really do need to get into. And, and be assured, what we are about to get into, as Michael Barber makes the point, has been treated by church fathers, great Christian thinkers, and saints and popes alike. And so what is this theological point to be had that, that some of you might even think to be as strange? Although it is true that God is totally spiritual, having no body and thus no gender, the Spirit is often spoken of in bridal, maternal terms. Of course, the Spirit is not feminine or, or a she, since God is spiritual. Neither is the Father male, but there is something in human fatherhood and motherhood that nevertheless reflects the divine persons. When God creates mankind, he creates man as an image of himself. The author of Genesis stresses that man bears God's image in being male and female. In verse 27, we read, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So the creation of Adam, who is called the Son of God, mirrors the way that God is Father and Son in the Trinity. But what of Eve? Well, she is also part of God's creation of mankind. Now, as the question is posed by Michael Barber, an important question, in what way is God's image found in man being male and female? Certainly some early heretics said that the Holy Spirit couldn't be God because he is not God's son. Only sons and daughters, they said, could share in nature. Since the Spirit proceeds from the Father in a way different from the Son, he could not truly share in the divine nature. Well, the great St. Gregory of Nazianzus had an answer for them. 
Eve isn't Adam's son, but she shares in the same human nature as Adam. She is not created the same way Adam was, but she is just a human. So it is possible for the Spirit to proceed from the Father in a way different from the Son and still share the divine nature. Moreover, and in a very important explanation, St. Methodius went on and explained that Eve is created by God and comes from the side of Adam, just as the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. So just as Eve was made from the rib of Adam, St. Methodius said that the Holy Spirit is the rib of the Word. And I love that. The Holy Spirit is the rib of the Word. And the great Matthias Sheban adds that just as a human mother is the bond of love between a father and son, the Holy Spirit is the bond of love between the father and son. A human father begets his son in the mother as the father begets the son in the spirit. So Sheban and others have noted that the role of the spirit is often described in bridal and maternal terms. I know we're getting into some rich theology, but important theology nonetheless. I might ask that you spend extra time with this because it is important. It is important, especially when you consider some of the ways the New Testament describes the Holy Spirit and how it implies maternal roles. How about John chapter 3, verses 5 to 6? Through the Spirit we are born in baptismal water as human mothers bear their children. In Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 to 23, we read that the Spirit is what? Fruitful. In Romans 8, verses 1 to 17, we see how the Spirit is spoken of in terms of caring for children. There are many others that could be cited. Jesus himself seems to imply a certain maternity of the Holy Spirit when he says that he will not leave the church orphans as he goes away to be with the Father. Certainly, an orphan is someone without a father or a mother. Yet Jesus says that the church will not be left as orphans once he goes to the Father because the Spirit will be with him. Powerful stuff. I mean, we could also look at the Old Testament where the Spirit is spoken of as what in Wisdom chapter 9, verse 17, but wisdom itself. So in this, we see how the Holy Spirit is described in maternal terms in relation to God's faithful ones. Other verses of note, Sirach chapter 4, verse 11, wisdom exalts her sons and gives help to those who seek her. Wisdom chapter 8, verse 2, I desire to take her as my bride, and I became enamored of her beauty. Now, you have heard me talk about St. Maximilian Kolbe before. St. Maximilian Kolbe described Mary as a kind of human replica of the Holy Spirit, if you will. He called the Spirit the true and uncreated immaculate conception, of which Mary is an image. And of course, when we talk about the immaculate conception, we're not talking about Jesus, but Mary, huh? How is this so? Well, just as the Father and the Son pour themselves out to each other in the Spirit, so too the Father continues to beget the Son in Mary. When Jesus becomes man, the very life of the Trinity, the Trinity's life of love, goes on as Jesus continues to offer himself to the Father through his humanity. Here we should keep in mind 
that this offering doesn't simply take place on the cross. From the moment of our Lord's virginal conception, Jesus begins to sanctify humanity by offering himself in his own human nature. And this takes place from the moment of his conception as he dwells in Mary. Jesus offers himself to the Father and Mary, just as he does through the Spirit. And in this way, we could see how Mary becomes the bond of love between the Father and the Son in human history. Through his overshadowing of her, the Holy Spirit replicates his own person and work in the Blessed Mother as a kind of human icon of himself. How rich is this? St. Maximilian Kolbe would go on to say that the Spirit is so closely united to Mary that he fully dwells in her. And here, could we not turn to sacred scripture? In that great angelic salutation from the angel Gabriel to Mary, Luke 1, 28, Hail, full of grace. Rejoice, O highly favored one. The Greek kekaritomene communicates what? This fullness of grace, this plentitude of grace. And remember, that Greek word is a perfect participle, which means it's an action completed in the past, which is why, of course, this scripture is so foundational for her immaculate conception, but also a verse that speaks to her who is full of grace. She has been impregnated, if you will, with this totality of grace. And we could add something else here as we are talking about Mary. Mary is the archetype of the church. This means that by looking at Mary, we can come to a better understanding of the Spirit's presence in the church. Just as the Spirit is powerfully present in the person of Mary, so also is He united with the church. In the church, the Son's self-offering to the Father is continued in the lives of the faithful. This, my friends, as we have seen, is the authentic faith of the New Testament I began to talk about this yesterday. What does Paul say in Colossians 1.24? I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I complete what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. Likewise, in Galatians, he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The church then, my friends, is taken up into that act of the Trinity's life-giving love, just as the Son offered himself to the Father through the Spirit in Mary. The church, in a similar way, is united to the Spirit as the Son pours out his life to the Father in the church. Our Lord's sacrifice is represented through us. In other words, <laughs> as Christ offers himself through the suffering of believers, the believer is taken up into the life-giving love of the Trinity. Powerful, powerful stuff. What a vocation we have been given. A vocation we need to contemplate, huh? All right, we are out of time. We will pick up here tomorrow. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen, and God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 5.30 here on KKXX. 
If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.